Welcome to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Krokmalden. Together, we'll explore the art of turning tiny seeds into a thriving microgreens empire, sharing insights, coveted secrets, and strategic wisdom from building one of Canada's largest microgreens farms. Stay tuned for thought-provoking conversations with leading figures in the world of microgreens. On today's episode of the podcast, we're answering your questions from social media, everything from pricing your products for restaurants, inexpensive tray filler options, differences between white and purple grow lights, and so much more. Stay tuned as we have a really great Q&A for you today. The first question is, I've seen growers say that 20 to 25 grams is the right seeding rate for broccoli, and you've recommended 10 grams. Why the difference? So first off, you can seed broccoli at 20 to 25 grams. I've heard as high as 30 grams uh, as a seeding rate for broccoli. Uh, But what you're doing is you're sacrificing quality for yield. And my philosophy on growing microgreens is to produce the highest quality product because that will allow you to sell more of the product to uh, consumers and really differentiate yourself from all the other growers that are seeding at uh, this high rate that's sacrificing uh, the quality of the product. So the, the reason the quality is much lower at this high seeding rate is if you're seeding really densely, each plant has less room, less light, and less soil space to, to grow. So each individual plant is going to be smaller. And when each individual plant is smaller, it's going to have less, less nutrition, less light energy, less uh, nutrition from the soil. And it's going to generally cause a, a lot of elongation in the stem, which is where the yield will come from at this high seeding rate. And you really want to avoid this because you're going to have a lower quality product because of that lower nutrition, lower light levels per plant. Um, and you're going to have much longer stems, which is considered a lower quality microgreen product. So the reason I recommend 10 grams is from all the experience I've had growing microgreens for the last 10 years is that is the right balance between um, seeding rate and, and getting a good, a good yield on broccoli microgreens. If you if you see at a really high rate, you're also much more likely to get dampening off, have moisture issues in the canopy of the crop. So when you see a really densely uh, tray of microgreens, even if you have fans and airflow, it still can be really hard to get those crops dry before harvest, which is a really important step to uh, avoid uh, extra work after you harvest of drying the crops with fans after they're cut. So you, the best thing to do is always to dry them before they're cut, and that saves a lot of time. Um, the other thing besides nutrition, which I think is really important, is the shelf life won't be as good if that product is wet, which at 20, 25, or 30 grams, you're going to have generally a pretty wet product because of how dense the canopy is. Like the leaves are literally going to be overlapping like every leaf. So there's no room for it to, to transpire properly. So for all these reasons, having a correct seeding rate is is crucial. And there's so much information out there, some of them from seed companies that are just trying to sell more seeds, some of them from growers that are trying to just maximize yield. And I totally get that. Like, you know, yield is definitely very important, but I don't personally think that yield, it, having a higher yield is worth the sacrifice of uh, having a lower quality product. Because um, if, if, if you just think about from the consumer's perspective, if you're a consumer and you have the choice between like a product that's much larger leaf tastes much better is much crunchier um it has higher nutrition versus a lower quality product that's longer stems smaller leaves doesn't really have much of a as much of a flavor what would you choose 
And I think it's pretty obvious you would choose the one that's higher quality. So if you have other microgreen growers in your area, or even if you just want to put out a high quality microgreen product for your consumers, you're going to want to lean towards that side of, of it, which is having a, a correct seeding rate or a lower seeding rate, I should say, like, you know, it's up, up to your opinion if it's correct or not, but a lower seeding rate and, and get a much higher quality product. It'll make sales so much easier for you guys if you just seed properly and have a high quality product, because a lot of people won't say that they didn't like your product. Um, so that, that's where, you know, working with chefs can often be helpful is they'll just be straight up honest with you and be like, Hey, look, this is a poor quality microgreen. But if you're selling just to direct to consumer or just to retail, you may not have that same feedback loop to find out what is considered a high quality product. So that's kind of what I'm trying to put out there. So hope that answers that question. The next question is I've been using the quick cut greens harvester and it's great. Any tips for using this tool? First off, congrats on using that. It's a really, really great tool. I really hope every MyGreens farm uh, adopts this. And you know, that's one of my goals is to get people to be more efficient. So I'm glad you're using it because it's a great inexpensive tool that you can use to uh, speed up um, your operation. Um, so tips for using this tool. Um, there's a few I have offhand that I've had from, I've probably used the harvester for about six or seven years now. Um, and a few things I've noticed is one, you want to use, uh, you see, you've seen a lot of videos with the quick cut green harvester, uh, power, uh, battery powered drill being used. So you can use a battery powered drill, but the challenge with that is as your harvest goes on, the amount of torque is going to change as the battery gets more and more weak or, or loses power. So for microgreens, you're generally growing it indoors. So you don't need a battery powered uh, drill to use, you can use a plug-in drill and that will avoid any issues uh, and have the consistent torque in the drill um, and, and the drive shaft throughout the harvest. So I think that's really, really important. Um, and honestly, a, you can get, like I, I was using a Ryobi drill and it was like 50 bucks um, and maybe, and it lasted, I think we only had to have two in that six year period, uh, six or seven year period I was, I was using the harvester. Uh, so it's cheap. You just plug it in and then you don't have to worry about the battery power changing. Also, there is a recommendation on how much RPM of a drill you want to use with the harvester. I can't remember. It's roughly like 2000, but some drills are lower than that. Um, and some might be a lot higher. So you want to make sure that the drill you're using matches the amount of uh, RPM for the harvester. I think it's for how fast the blade is spinning and the tines are spinning. Because uh, if it's too fast, it, the tines might spin so fast that it spews out a lot of greens, which comes to the next tip, uh, which is that you will find, um, even with the correct RPM, that you'll find um, some of the greens will, will spray out from those tines spinning. And the best way to, uh, I found to fix that is really two things. Uh, one is to, as you're harvesting the greens, if you find it's piling up right by um, where the tines are, you kind of have to move that to the back of the basket, and that will allow space for new greens to um, to be cut. So if you if you just let's say you want to cut ten trays, and you cut ten trays, and you and you just leave the greens um, that are being cut the first few there, by the tenth tray, it's going to be spewing out a lot of greens because there's nowhere for there's no space for the cut greens to go. So every roughly three or four trays, you can just with your hand, just push back the greens to the back of the basket. And that will almost solve 
that problem completely. So that's the, that's the first one. The second one is to add some sort of plastic covering over the top and front uh, above the tines. Um, and that if, if it does spray out, it'll hit that plastic and then bounce back down. So you can just use any sort of material that is food safe. So uh, any sort of food safe plastic or material, um, you can either uh, like pin it with um, clips or you can uh, use Velcro or, or whatever it may be to attach that uh, plastic. And then instead of the greens flying out, they'll hit that plastic, bounce back in and stay in. So you, so you get even more of the harvest. Um, and that'll also prevent any greens that are not getting cut um, with, uh, with the pushback method. Um, you'll find that more of the tray will get cut. So the only time the quick cut greens harvester isn't super effective is in two scenarios. One, where the greens are really, really wet. So if they're like soaking wet, um, you'll find that it won't cut that well. And the other scenario is um, if you find your, tr like, let's say your trays are fl flopped over, like they're so elongated that they're just like flopped over, it won't cut those kind of trays very well. But usually it's only the ends that people find that flop over. Um, and obviously having the correct amount of light and having um, the correct soil nutrition and all that in temperature will prevent the greens from getting too leggy. Uh, and seeding rate as well, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then you can avoid those kind of issues. But generally speaking, those are really the only two issues I've ever ran into with the harvester. So um, they, they're both fixable. One is just making sure it's not too densely seeded um, and having enough light. And then the other is making sure that they're fairly dry. They don't have to be perfectly dry, but fairly dry before harvesting. Next question is, we're doubling our farm next year and need to improve efficiency. That's awesome. I love to hear that. What do you recommend we implement? So um, just quickly, the first thing that comes to mind is having uh, low cost automation at your disposal. So this includes things like the Quick Cut Greens Harvester, uh, the, the seeding machine that we're gonna release early in the spring that will allow people to speed up the time it takes to seed significantly and things like uh, Vertigro's Farmware software that kind of automates all the tasks you need to do each day and uh, reminds you, make sure you get all your watering done. This is especially effective if you have staff um, that you don't have to keep on top of them. You just have a checklist that they can use um, and it'll track a whole bunch of, of data that will help you see where you're making the most money with your farm and where what crops are not that efficient. So um, having that software at hand and that data is really valuable. So that's the first thing I'd recommend is having these like low cost automation solutions. So Obviously there's things that are higher cost like tray washers and soil mixing machines and things like that. Um, those uh, are, are important. And if your farm is big enough that it makes sense to buy those, definitely do. But uh, you always wanna go after the low, low, lowest hanging fruit first, which are low cost items that you can implement today, whether you're a small or big farm, uh, that will save you a ton of money and a ton of time in the long run. Um, so those I recommend everyone to do. And then depending on the size of your farm, those higher cost automations might make sense as well. Next is having effective tools to train staff to handle the extra workload. So as you expand, so if you're doubling your farm, you're gonna have, in theory, double the workload. So the automation will help uh, reduce the amount of that. So maybe let's say we can get, instead of it being double the workflow, it's 1.5 times, uh, so 50% higher uh, amount of workflow, but you have double the revenue, which is great. So that, that's kind of the goal is as you scale, you have this automation in place. 
But having said that, you're still going to have extra workload. So at a certain point, uh, every farm comes to this uh, conclusion that they can't do everything themselves, including myself, which took, you know, maybe too long for me to, to recognize and, and accept that. Um, but you have to train staff. You're going to have to hire staff until the, the Tesla robot comes out. We're going to have to hire staff to do the extra workload at our farms. And it's really important that this is done correctly because training staff is very time consuming and very energy intensive. And it may not seem like it, but it really is. So when you're training someone, you're doing what you normally do, but you're also doing all this training to help your staff take over some of those tasks. So there's this period of time that there's extra, extra workload. And it's important to plan properly for that because you can really burn out during that, that transition phase, especially with everything else going on with your farm, your doubling uh, capacity. Um, you have a lot of stress on like getting everything set up with sales and, and production and everything else that you need to do. So you want to do these things in advance. So preparation is really important. So having um, things like SOPs, so standard operating procedures, training manuals. One thing I think is really important and really easy for most people to implement now is to video record how you do things. And you can always add like an audio above it very easily. Um, and just explain what you're doing. And then you have something uh, uh, some, something on, on, on the equivalent of paper or on your computer that shows your staff how things are to be done. And this is the easiest way to do it because you're already doing these tasks right now. And it's just recording the video of you doing it and then adding in the audio on top of it, explaining why and what you're doing. And this is so important to avoid broken telephone. So... One thing that can often happen is, let's say you hire your first staff, you teach them a certain way, and then you get them to teach the next person, and then they teach the next person. And there's going to be all these small things that change over time as they're taught by different people. So if you have something that's recorded by you, the person that has been doing it for the longest, um, it'll ensure that there's less broken telephone as things, as time goes on, as you build up a team and expand your farm. I think this is crucial. Um, something that I wish uh, I had someone tell me uh, when I started hiring people. So hope that helps. And then the last thing is uh, I've, I see this a lot where people, uh, as they expand, they want to offer more and more products. And this can be a positive if it's in line with your production system. So for example, if you are growing microgreens and you want to add a new microgreen that fits in with your time frame, let's say you have a limit of I only want to grow crops that take two weeks or less as an example. And you find a crop that's profitable in demand. And this, you know, go back to the last podcast episode for anyone listening or a few episodes ago where I talk about uh, choosing the right crops. So if it works with that model of choosing a crop that's profitable, makes sense, uh, add that in as you expand. That's totally fine. But what I see happening more and more is people are trying to sell, uh, you know, dried microgreen products as like a, a, like a supplement like AG1. Uh, they're trying to sell salad dressings that have their basil in it, things like that. This this is like almost like running a se a separate new business. And people don't always realize that, that you're pretty much creating a whole new production system. So you have your your microgreens production system, and then you're you're creating a new production system and a brand new product line that's related, but not the same production process. So you're pretty much starting another business in a way. And I think it's really important to stick to uh, your product offerings that are profitable and that are scalable. So if, for example, let's say you want, you want to do uh, dried microgreens, so you want to do a powdered microgreen product, 
you have a whole different production line. So you have, you have, you have to create the microgreens in the same way, but then you have this extra step of uh, drying the, the microgreens, uh, blending them up, packaging them in most likely a different type of packaging because it's a dried product, getting distribution for that, selling that product, marketing that product. It's a whole other business that may not appear like that at first, but once you start doing it, you'll see it, it really is another business. And it, if it's not as profitable as growing the microgreens, which most likely it won't be just based on the high profitability of microgreens, it would make more sense to stick uh, with growing microgreens and selling microgreens as a fresh product and getting that to be more efficient or getting more sales for that would be a more effective use of your time than starting another, another business, quote unquote. So I think that's really, really important that uh, luckily this was something that I didn't have to learn the hard way because um, I kind of understood the, the business side of that and how important it is to stick to a core product offering. Uh, but for those of you that are considering that, I don't want to discourage you from it. I just want you to understand how much time that can really take up because it can be significant um, and can lead you away from making a really profitable microgreens farm. Next question, any recommendations on staying productive if you, meet, if you miss a week or two of deliveries? Um, so I was a lot more strict with myself uh, than I think most people are to the point that I didn't miss, uh, I missed one delivery in 10 years. Um, and it was because it, it was, it was a, a very difficult situation where a lot of people had COVID and, um, and I had too much else going on. I was actually filming the course, the, the Freedom Farmers course um the how to start a business from scratch course that week and it was just way too hectic i was like we're just going to cancel this one harvest and just move on and it was hard to take the loss on it because it was a lot of money i think it was like five or six thousand dollars um that harvest but i was like I, this is not practical like everyone's burnt out because so many people had covid and, and all this stuff and there was one time early on when i was working on my own that i had some sort of stomach bug it was really bad um and i still went in and did the work. So pretty much what I would do is I would sit for five minutes and then, uh, cause I was so exhausted, get up, do the work, feel exhausted five minutes later, sit down, get back up. And it, it took forever to do the work, but I got it done. Having said that, I wouldn't recommend that. I don't think that is, uh, very good, um, to do for your personal health. So that was something that I just had a lot of drive and I really did want to disappoint customers, but I wouldn't recommend going that far. So. If you miss a week or two of deliveries once in a while, I, I think people can understand that it's, you know, life happens. This is, it's just the way the, the world is, especially the last few years. I think people are more accepting of like, if you're sick, not to expect you to, to go out of your way and do something that you really shouldn't be doing because you're sick as an example. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Of course, like you have to keep in mind when you're missing deliveries that you're potentially uh, damaging the relationship with customers. So if you do this all the time, if you're like, Hey, I'm going to be on vacation for the next month. Uh, I'm not going to be doing deliveries. It may cause some people to, to leave and go find another microgreens, um, farm to buy from Now that's not guaranteed, but you know, if you have, let's say a thousand customers, you may find some that are like, Hey, I want my microgreens every week. Um, and then you'll find most of them are going to be totally accommodating and, and understand, but just keep that in mind when making those decisions. Um, especially with vacation, if, you know, obviously if you're sick, I think people are more understanding, but if you're like, Hey, I'm going to Hawaii for two weeks, I won't have your microgreens. 
people may not be as receptive to that. Um, so just to keep that in mind, but you know, we can't, you can't expect someone to be 365 to 365 days a year on the ball. Uh, it's just not practical. Um, and people have lives. So just keep that in mind, but at the same time, keep in mind that customers, um, will be affected and to keep that in your decision-making process. Next question is, I want to sell to restaurants, but I'm not sure how to price my products. How should I approach this? This is a great question. So, um, what I found, which is kind of like, kind of fun, I think it's like a detective kind of, uh, way of finding out what you should sell your product to to restaurants is to contact uh, a few distributors that carry microgreens in your area and ask for a price list. And, um, maybe if you say you're a microgreens farm, they won't, you know, give you the price list. So worst case scenario, you can just be like, Hey, I'm considering opening a restaurant and I just want to find out what the price of microgreens are. So once you have that, uh, so that, that's what I did. That's the easiest way to find out what the price is in your local area. Once you have that from a few different distributors, you don't want to rely on one. You want to contact a few different ones. Most restaurants are going to order from distributors. So that's where you're going to find what the price point is. So once you have that, you know what they're currently paying for microgreens, uh, which is a, a, a huge piece of information that will help you determine what to charge. Now, there's different approaches. You can charge the same for the same size. And then and that, in my opinion, makes it the easiest to switch to have the same. So if let's say it's a, a, a four ounce clamshell is what they're currently buying. It's much easier to sell it in a four ounce clamshell than to sell it in a three ounce clamshell because the chefs just want to know very simply that they're busy they, and, and same thing with the distributors. They want to know, Hey, I'm getting this product, uh, the same size. This is what the price is. It's an easy comparison for them and an easy switch because they know how much they're ordering. So if a chef is ordering five clamshells of basil, every week, then if you start changing it from four ounces to three ounces, then they have to like, they're less likely to want to switch because it makes it harder for them to switch as, as simple as it is, which is just a simple math calculation, really. Um, they don't want to do that. They want to just know, okay, this, this, I like this product better. Uh, and it's this, and it's everything's exactly the same. So it's an easy switch. Um, now with price there's a couple options. If you, if you're, if you think your product is much higher quality, then you can go into the same price. If you think your product is the same quality, you have to incentivize that distributor to want to carry that product. And the best way to do that is generally with price. So I would offer something about 10%, maybe 50% lower than what they're currently paying. And you'll still, you know, uh, make a very good margin on that. And then you always have the option in the future to raise it back up, to be in line. Um, once you have success. So you can always do these kind of like, uh, early promotions where you like, whether it's a retail store or a restaurant and offer us like a, could be a steep discount to kind of get in the door and then slowly raise it back up to what the market level of price is. And that, that'll make it a lot easier to get into these type of places that if you haven't, if you're struggling, get in to get into them because, you know, price is obviously a big factor in that, in those decisions for distributors, for restaurants, for retail stores, et cetera. My last crop of sunflower had some brown divots in a lot of the leaves. Any ideas what may have caused that? Um, so I've seen this a few times and generally speaking, what I've seen is it's a seed issue. So if there was some sort of, let's say mold or um, any sort of like issue in the growing environment, when the seeds were forming, you may find some seeds have these like brown 
beige, yellowy kind of spots on the cotyledons as they're growing, which is the first set of leaves, which is really all, all you eat for sunflower is the, the cotyledons. Um, that, that is something that can happen. And there's really not like if it happens, there's really not much you can do about it other than get another lot of seed. Now, keep in mind, if there's just a few of them, if you have a tray, like, you know, there's thousands of sunflowers in a tray, if you have like five of them in a tray, I wouldn't worry about it. If like, let's say half of the leaves have that, then that's obviously a huge issue and you want to find another lot of seed. But from what I've seen, there's not really much you can do other than um, find another lot of seed that doesn't have that issue. Um, so that, yeah, that's the simple, simple, quick and quick and easy answer for that. Next question is, do you keep your greens under the lights for the same amount of time or do you keep some longer or shorter? So I've always kept them the same for all the crops, but having said that, there are ways to optimize your system uh, to save electricity costs so uh, or to increase the yield on some really slow growing crops. So some crops can handle 24 hours of light, um, but you, like where I am, we're under time of use, which means um, electricity is really expensive for six hours of the day. So here I have some, some crops growing behind me. Uh, and I'm really excited. I'm going to do some YouTube videos on doing testing between the white and, and uh, purple lights and a bunch of other tests. Um, so stay tuned for that on YouTube. Those will come out soon. Um, but I was, where I was going with this is you can do testing and optimize for certain crops. So for example, pea shoots and sunflower, you can probably get away with 12 hours instead of 18 if you really wanted to. It's hard to say for sure because I haven't done this testing yet if it's gonna affect the yield or quality. My guess is obviously they're gonna have you know longer stems, um, which they already, you know, pea shoots and sunflower already have long stems. So that's not something you can just cut a little bit higher. You're probably gonna get a little bit lower nutrition levels because the light obviously gives the plant energy to absorb the nutrients in the soil. So if you have the less light you have, the less nutrition you're gonna have. Those are really the only two crops that would lower it below 18 hours. There's certain crops I would definitely not increase beyond 18 hours as an example, basil, because it has, it, it, basil's native to India and it's in an area where it's very used to having for a very, very long period of time, 12 hours, roughly 12 hours of light a day. So when you get, when you give basil uh, 24 hours of light, it grows really weird. It gets these like weird morphological, it looks like like something out of like a, like a plant horror movie or something. Um, it just gets really bumpy and it looks like it has some disease, but it's not a disease. It's just too much light and the plant literally can't handle it. Um, it doesn't know how to deal with that much light. But for a lot of crops, like I know lettuces and uh, a lot of brassicas, they can handle 24 hours, but you're going to get a very minimal marginal increase in production unless your light levels are really low. So if you're using one or two lights, then you're going to definitely see benefit increasing it to 24 hours from 18. If you're using three lights, you'll find... There might be some benefit, but it's probably not worth the extra electricity cost, especially if you're on time of use like I am here, where you're paying pretty much like double the triple for electricity during those six hours of the day. So I just have the lights off. Um, and that's what I recommend for anyone that is on time of use. Next question, are there any inexpensive tray soil fillers out there? We're growing rapidly and I'm worried of keeping up as a ramp up production. So if Again, awesome that you're you're growing rapidly. I think I think that's great. I think it's important to you know, like you said, manage this. So it's great that you're asking this question because as you ramp up production, you want to ensure that it's not a linear a linear increase in amount of work. So ideally, you want to have if you're doubling, you want to have less than double the amount of work, and that means you're getting more efficient. 
Um, so in terms of soil tray fillers, there is um, some that are in the roughly seven to 8,000 Canadian price point. So maybe 6,000 US is about the cheapest you can get buying one new. Um, and those are not the best tray fillers, but they're much faster than doing it by hand. That's for sure. So um, the one that I know of that I used was called uh, the SB, so letter SB05, and it's made by SB Machinery in Quebec. Um, that's what we used before we upgraded to a larger soil mixing machine. It's from going from soil mixing by hand to that, it's a huge upgrade. It's, in my opinion, well worth the money. Um, but once you go to like the really good soil mixing machines that have conveyor belts and really are fast to um, to fill trays, like it's just like you put it in on the other side, it comes out like five seconds later. Those are like just great to have. Whereas these less expensive ones, they're still much faster, but they're not going to be as efficient. So you got to keep that in mind. Um, another exciting update regarding uh, inexpensive uh, trace soil fillers um, would be with the cedar. It, yeah, I had this idea to create something similar to the cedar, but for mixing or for not mixing soil, but filling trays. So you just put soil in this and then you roll it across the tray and then it will fill and flatten the soil evenly. Um, so that's something that is uh, is still in the idea phase, but I think we're going to implement it. And I think it might even be less expensive than the cedar. Um, so that would be a great dual toolkit for people to have um, when they're when they're smaller microgreens farms, especially for the soil mixer, because you still at some point would want a proper soil mixing machine. But this will be a good option for people that want to have something that's portable, doesn't take up much space, easy to use and is inexpensive so we're uh me and james from vertigo are going to probably start working that working on that later this year so it's not something that's going to be out you know uh in the next three or four months but i'll keep you guys up to date on that because i think that'll be another revolutionary tool for farms to have um that they can really speed up the seeding and soil mixing process next question is what are your thoughts on adding silica packs to clamshells to capture excess moisture uh, so I've thought about this uh, a lot early on, and they are not that expensive. Um, but having said that, I don't think they're necessary. So they, if you if your greens are really wet, they're definitely going to help wick away moisture from the greens. But if your greens are soaking wet, then you know that's just like throwing a bandaid on the solution rather than actually figuring out what's causing the problem, which is most likely either seed density, moisture in your space, or not using enough airflow prior to harvest, um, having those things would make a lot more sense to fix the problem rather than um, trying to find a Band-Aid solution that costs money too, right? Because each clamshell you sell, you have to put one of these silica packs in if that's the route you want to take to keep the product lasting longer. I would recommend just making sure the greens are dry before harvesting by having good, good airflow prior to harvest. So adding a fan on high speed for you know 12 to 24 hours before harvesting those trays will make a huge difference and that'll save you from having to spend money on these uh, silica packs um, and a fan will be much cheaper in the long run than having a silica pack for each clamshell even if they're like five or ten cents it, it you know it does take away from the profitability of your farm which as much as we can we want to avoid Next question is, is it okay to spray the seeds during germination with diluted xerotol if I see the beginning of mold growth spreading 
If not, what is an acceptable solution or method for dealing with this? Um, so first off, yes, it's totally okay. Xerotol is approved for uh, the spring of crops at a certain dilution rate. So it's gonna be uh, more diluted than if you're using it to disinfect trays. So you gotta keep that in mind. So on the label, it has full directions on what is safe to spray on crops versus spraying um, to disinfect. So you wanna make sure you stay within those ranges um, because you in potentially could damage the seed. Um, like if you spray, this has happened, if you sprayed Xerotol on the leaf of microgreens at the dilution rate for, um, for disinfecting trays, you will find that the leaves will get bumpy. Uh, pretty much trying to defend itself from this, like, you know, uh, 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 from the peroxide and vinegar that's really trying to, you know, kill the plant uh, in simple terms. So you want to have the right dilution rate and Xerotol is totally safe at the right dilution rate to uh, manage mold. Having said that, we, we I, I did this early on um, in my farming journey, and I found that it's much more efficient just to add vermiculite on top of your seeds as a way to prevent mold. And it's more time efficient, which at a certain point you'll get to, you'll be like, time is the most valuable resource in this world and I wanna maximize my time. And uh, when you get to that point, you can switch from Xerotol um, to vermiculite. It'll probably cost a bit more to be honest to use vermiculite, but you get a bunch of different benefits from vermiculite. Mold prevention is just one of them. So you can you can try that, maybe test that out if you want and see if it, if it fixes your mold problem, uh, which it, it'll definitely help. I've had, since I've been putting this out there, I've had many either consulted clients or just people that have been listening to the podcast or uh, following on Instagram sort of thing of saying how much the vermiculite has helped them. So uh, definitely, definitely recommend trying that um, at least as a test to see if it helps or eliminates um, that issue. So we're gonna do uh, one last question here, which is what is the difference between white colored light and purple colored light? So this is a great question. I think there's a lot of misconception in the industry about this. And this is why I'm doing uh, this test you can see behind me is to showcase the differences between the two. So we'll see, I don't wanna say for sure, but from my experience, we'll see what the tests show, but from my experience, uh, you're gonna have better growth with the purple colored lights because they're much more efficient for growing plants. And the science behind this is you have pretty much two wavelengths that are peak photosynthesis production in plants. So a photon hits the plant and it's gonna have the highest level of energy production in the plant, which is one, a blue spectrum light that's around 460 nanometers and a red spectrum light that's roughly 660 nanometers. And those two lights are, are combined, um, will be much more efficient for plants to absorb light and energy than yellow green colored light which is what most white light is 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 mostly green and yellow it's a full spectrum of white light but it's it's much more predominant in the green and yellow spectrum and in the green yellow spectrum the plants still absorb that light they just don't absorb it as efficiently so it takes more electricity to get the same output or in the case behind me you have the same amount of electricity and in theory you should have higher yields or more production with the purple lights because there's more energy hitting the plant. So that's really the difference between the two. The reason white colored light is more popular uh, is really because of the cannabis industry. So um, at a certain amount of light level, so if you get to the really high 
you know, a thousand watt kind of a lights that are used to grow cannabis or tomatoes, things like that. They're like fruiting crops or flowering crops. You, you really can't put a hundred percent of light in those uh, blue and red spectrum because at a certain point, the plants can't absorb any more of that light. So you hit like a peak and then beyond that, the plants can't really absorb more of that light. So when you have a white color light, you're giving a full spectrum of these different wavelengths and the plant can't absorb all of them because there's not too much of any of them. And my guess is a plant can probably only absorb so much of the green and yellow light as well. Now, this is not, this is just me speculating, not actual science, but my, that would be my guess. So if you had the opposite situation where you're only giving yellow or green light, um, you would have the same issue occur and you'd have to add in purple or red light to increase the yield beyond that. So the cannabis industry has obviously taken over, especially as it's become uh, in Canada uh, legal, and then in the United States decriminalized and legal in more and more states every year. Um, so the industry is growing and that's a much bigger industry than microgreens. So the, the tendency is to produce products that are geared towards um, the cannabis industry instead of the microgreens industry. So that's why you see more white colored light, but the purple light is much, much better. Some people call them the blurple light, um, blurple lights they're much more efficient for growing microgreens because you don't need to give uh, you know, that much electricity or that much energy to microgreens compared to fruiting crops or flowering crops. So that's really why uh, I recommend purple lights. Now, having said that, um, it's really nice to have the white light. I've been growing for purple lights for like, I think nine years because it was the first year I used fluorescence. And then after that, I switched to the purple LEDs. Um, it's really nice actually to grow with the white light from like a just aesthetic perspective. It's easy to get pictures of the crops. I'm doing a time lapse right now of the crops growing and it just doesn't look as good with the purple lights. So you don't get the vibrancy of the greens and, and purples and all that sort of stuff in the microgreens. So I think it's really great to have it from that perspective. Um, but from a growing perspective and an efficiency perspective, the purple lights just make a whole lot more sense. So hope this helps you guys on your microgreens journey, whether you're a beginner or uh, established business. And if anyone is interested in um, starting a microgreens business or learning a lot more about starting a microgreens business, feel free to go to jonah.freedomfarmers.com and you can get a free microgreens training on how to start uh, a microgreens business from your home in just six square feet. It's a great free resource. And then at the end, you get a really steep discount to uh, a full business in a box microgreens course that I've created with Freedom Farmers that thousands of students have started farms with. And it's a really great resource for anyone that is looking to start or uh, learn a lot more about running a microgreens business. And even for those that there's lots of students that have taken that course that have established microgreens businesses and have found a ton of value uh, from the course. So feel free to check that out. It's jonah.freedomfarmers.com. Thanks everyone for tuning in and look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. To access a wealth of insights, just click the subscribe button, stay notified about each new episode and enjoy all of this wisdom for free. If you're ready to supercharge your Microgreens business, visit microgreensconsulting.com for a gold mine of guides and resources. We've transformed thousands of Microgreens businesses and you're invited to join the success story. 
Let's stay connected. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at Mike Greens Consulting for exclusive content and expert tips and wisdom. If you found this episode insightful, please leave us a review, spread the word, and let's share Mike Green's magic with the world. Until next time, let curiosity fuel your growth and may happiness be your harvest. Happy growing, everyone.